Welcome to the third episode of the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, hosted by Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This week, we're looking at Squeeze. This is the first true Monster of the Week episode. In addition to that, it's also the first episode written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong. They are co-executive producers on this series, and we're going to see a lot of episodes written by them coming up in future years. This episode is set in Baltimore, Maryland, at least for the most part. Now, we start off with just... Typical, again, location shooting, but it's a typical street in what appears to be a business area. Now, the camera angles are a little unusual. It starts off with a very high view, and it's high as though almost like someone's on a streetlight watching. Cut then to extremely low. We are actually cutting back and forth between a storm drain and a view of a man walking down the street, which apparently is from the storm drain. We get a real sense of how the show sets itself apart and how it really stretches every special effects dollar that we have. The person in the frame starts moving in slow motion. The background goes to black and white. It's only that main character in color, and it's a very different color. We get a slight glimpse of eyes watching him from inside the storm drain, and that's it. From there, we cut to him entering a typical office building. It's pretty deserted. The elevator he came out of opens again. Once again, the budget is stretched, and it's more suspense and more the imagination of the viewer. We see elevator cables rattling. We don't see anything on them. Man goes to his office. He leaves a message for his wife. The presentation didn't go well. He's going to be working late. Again, we see some evidence of location shooting. If we look at the desk, the coffee mug that might leave a ring is being put on top of papers. Anything that might leave a permanent mark is usually left on something else that's cheap and easily replaced. Man goes to get his coffee cup filled, and we cut to the air vent. Being unscrewed from the inside, we see some fingers coming out. So the man heads back to the office, and once again, it's what we can fill in with our imaginations. It's not what we see. The door slams shut. We see the blinds shaking back and forth. We see the door handling. There's a loud thud against the door, and the door is damaged. We didn't actually see the attack. We cut inside. There's some red liquid dripping on the carpet. Pan up, or sorry, tilt up. Pan is strictly horizontal motion. We tilt up, and we see that's the mug on the counter. And again, the camera pans across the desk, and it's more of a steady cam than a true pan. We see blood spatter on the desk. We see the reflection of the victim in the background cut to the air duct being screwed back in place from the inside. Again, that's our teaser structure. Muller and Scully are not yet involved. We just see an attack. A man has been attacked in his office room. We don't know much about who attacks them. All we saw was some yellow eyes and some fingers wrapping around the corner of the duct. And it's not a particularly large duct either. Once again, a lot of what we're seeing is done with steady cam work rather than the traditional pans and tilts that require a mounted camera. So it's a little bit easier to get in and get out for the location shooting. After the opening credits, again, we're seeing the strength of the guest stars that they were able to get early on. Scully's having a lunch with Donald Lowe, who's playing Agent Tom Colt. They're obviously friends in the Academy, and they're talking about a colleague of theirs who's been promoted to a supervisory agent in only two years, and how amazing he's doing. Dana's taking the high road. She's going, well, you know, good for him. And Colton is more, oh, come on. Why is it him and not us? He doesn't like the guy personally. That's clouding his judgment. Now, Dane is pointing out he's had some success, as rumor is he's on the fast track of the violent crimes unit. Meanwhile, he's taking digs and pot shots at her just for being related to the X-Files and being associated with it, asking if she's had any close encounters. 
and bringing up again Mulder's nickname of Spooky. And then he starts to talk about the case he's on that's a little bit out there, and how the Baltimore PD wants help with a serial killer. There's no connection between the victims. The one we saw was actually the third victim. The only pattern is that there's no perceivable point of entry, and that every victim has had their liver ripped out by hand. So not cut out, but physically ripped out. So these are vicious attacks, quick attacks, definitely not suicides. So Colton's looking for help. He knows that this is the kind of case that can really put him on the map, and that's what he's come to Scully for. Scully asks if, basically, is this an X-Files type case? Is that why you're asking me, should Mulder come? And Colton makes it clear, this is his case. If Mulder wants to help out as a favor to Scully, he can. But Colton has no intention of sharing credit on this one. He wants this for himself and for his career. He actually tells Scully, make sure that he knows this is my case. He also lets her know that, you know, she won't have to be Mrs. Spooky anymore. She can come with him. So he's inviting her along to jump ship from the X-Files and follow him on what he sees as the fast track to success. So Scully obviously has the cut to Baltimore, and Baltimore's asking, why didn't they help me? And she mentions it's got a reputation. And he plays it cool. He's going, what? I have a reputation? What do you mean? And then you kind of tell, as the conversation goes, he's well aware of his reputation and his nickname is Spooky Mulder and he's been sort of dragging Scully along and leading her on. A little more of the friendly rapport that they have. So she introduces Mulder to Tom Colton when he arrives, who immediately goes for the alien joke with the little green men and Mulder corrects him saying, gray, reticulans are known for their gray skin and they're the race that are known for taking human livers. So again, we're seeing a lot of the way Mulder deals with the ridicule and the contempt that's coming through pretty clearly in this episode from his colleagues. Up to this point, it's just Colton. We're going to be seeing a lot more of that as it goes on. While Mulder's looking over the crime scene, which again, looks like could have clearly been a location shoot, all the permanent damage was to easily replaced in relatively cheap parts of the set, he notices a strip of metal that has come down from an air duct near the ceiling. Now, as the viewers, we know that this was the point of entry. Nobody else does for sure. Mulder fingerprints it anyway. Colton's going, what's he doing? That vent is 6 inches by 18 inches. Nobody's getting through there, but Mulder has found a fingerprint on it that's, you know, several centimeters or several inches long, and this means something to him. So, cut back to Mulder's work, and he's pulling up slides from old X-Files. He's showing Scully other cases with elongated fingerprints, ten different murders, and the prints were found at five of the ten different crime scenes, all in the Baltimore area. Scully's going, Colton didn't mention that many, and that's what Mulder says, well, that's because he probably didn't know about them. Two of them were lifted from Powhatan Mill five years before he was born, and the others were lifted before his mother was born. So these prints are coming up in 1963-33, and there's another set that fit the same modus operandi, with the lack of point of entry and the ripped out liver from 1903. So that's five murders every 30 years the same way. And these are the same elongated fingerprints. So now Scully's going, are you suggesting that we do a profile that this is an alien murderer? And one is going, no, not alien. So again, this is more, I think, for the viewer than for the characters themselves. He's just basically saying, there's something weird here, not necessarily alien. So it is the monster of the week. They are branching out, and they're not going back to it. Now, Mulder's claiming it's their case and not Colton's because the X-File goes back to 1903. This is one I'm not exactly sure holds up. That's 1903 seemed like an old time for a case. I did some digging online. It looks like the FBI didn't form until 1908. But I guess we can forgive Morgan and Wong for claiming something that's off. They didn't have Google back in 1993. In fact, most people weren't even online in 1993. Anyway, from there, we dissolve to Scully's office where she is doing a profile of the killer. 
Now remember, Mulder was given the leeway to participate in the X-Files because of his profiling skills. He was a natural profiler, so he's the one that caught Monty props, is what they mentioned in the pilot episode. This time it's Scully doing the profiling. Now she's got the slides of the fingerprints that's bothering her. She doesn't mention that in her profile. She does talk about this as probably a psychologically disturbed individual who sees the liver as sort of a symbolic trophy about, you know, it's regenerative and it's cleansing roles and basically where it comes through from a biological standpoint. And she presents this to Agent Colton and his superiors and his team, basically suggesting, though it doesn't always succeed, their best bet in finding him is to keep an eye on the locations where he successfully found victims in the past, hoping to relive that glory and recapture the emotional high. She's invited to take part if she wants to pull in the overtime, as they are following her profile and staking these locations out. So from here we cut to a past crime scene. We see Scully on a stakeout, and this is her first sign that in some ways Scully is actually a better FBI agent than Mulder. So she's in the vehicle, she's checking in, she hears some noises, and she reacts, moving in silence. She opens the door, gets out of the vehicle, draws her weapon, but she doesn't slam the vehicle shut. She's careful not to close it, just to leave it slightly ajar so as not to make a sound. She moves quietly and quickly with her weapon drawn, trying to check out what's making this noise. Turns out it's Mulder, who's running around with the sunflower seeds, making fun of the fact that, that she almost shot him. He's telling her, your profile's wrong. You should have read the X-File. He's not coming back. He's already beaten this place. His thrill is in making that point of entry, and he's basically going home and calling it off even though they're at work. And it's Scully that goes back to work while Mulder's ready to give up. On his way out, he hears noise and he realizes, oh, there is someone here. There's someone crawling through the ductworks in the middle of this parkade. He doesn't react the same way Scully did. First, there's the realization that this thing is in the ducts. So what does he do? He goes charging back to the car, screaming, call for backup, Scully, get over here. And he realizes they've got him. It's right there. They have to act quickly. But he's making no attempt to keep their presence silent and to keep it secret and catch the guy off guard like Scully was. So again, like I mentioned, in some ways, Scully is the better agent. So they get to the ductwork, and it's actually Scully that has her weapons drawn. We're not even sure Mulder's armed at this point. A guy comes crawling out of the vent wearing a uniform, as Scully's profile predicted. And we don't see a lot of him at first. We see him from behind. He turns around. We see a guy. He's in a uniform. His eyes aren't yellow, which is the only really distinctive feature we've seen of our killer so far. So the question is, is this the right guy? One big step for Mulder comes in this scene. Up to this point, the first two episodes were very much Mulder's cases. Even though the first one was from Scully's point of view, and the second was more from Mulder's point of view, Mulder was the one running the investigation, and Scully really did feel like a sidekick. This starts to shift right here, right now. When they catch the guy, they've got this suspect, what happens? Mulder goes to Scully and says, you are right. So this was his domain, the profiling was his bowl of wax, and Scully beat him at that game. He doesn't get pissy, he doesn't get angry, he just says, okay, you're right. It builds a lot of respect. And from this point on, we're going to see a lot more equal treatment between them. And Mulder's going to start to listen to her a little bit more. He still gets headstrong and still runs off in his own way. But he's going to basically be soliciting her input far more often from this point on. Back over there, they bring in the suspect. Memory fade out, fade back in on the lie detector test. Now he's being asked a series of questions. Is your full name Eugene Victor Toombs? Are you a Maryland resident? Are you an employee of the Baltimore Municipal Animal Control? And again, we have a guest actor who is really doing his job, even if we don't know him by name yet. Uh, Doug Hutchison was probably best known to a lot of people as being the sadistic guard in the Green Mile. While they're running through these tests, he's beating everything on the lie detector. You know, have you ever removed a liver from a human being? And he says no. He's able to keep his calm and keep his cool through the majority of the questions. While they're asking the questions you'd expect, he gets hit with two questions that Mulder put in there. The first question is, are you over 100 years old? 
The other agents immediately think, well, that must be a control question, until Mulder says, no, I asked her to ask that. And two questions later, he's asked, was he in Powhatan Mill in 1933? And he says no. When he's asked if he's afraid he might fail the test, then Toombs admits, well, yes, because he claims it's because he didn't do anything. Now, again, we're not really sure from the viewers that the lie detector operator, the polygraph operator, says that he passed it with flying colors. Mulder looks at the polygraph and notices that he did react to two questions. Now, the others are willing to write it off, because there was an animal control call made to that location, and they figure he's just the one civil servant who's taken the initiative to pull the overtime and deal with things immediately, and they bust him for it. And Scully's pointing out, he's calling through the air duct, he didn't check with security, Well, as Colton's saying, doesn't mean your profile's incorrect, it's just not the right guy. And Mulder's the one saying, no, this is the right guy, he lied on questions 11 and 13, which were the two questions that Mulder put in. Again, Colton's superior is going, is that the 100-year-old question? Is that the 1933 question? I had a reaction to that stupid question. So they are perfectly willing to let Toombs go based on the evidence that they have. So when Colton basically is inviting Scully to come with him and leave Mulder behind, she thanks him for the experience in the violent crime section, but says she's officially assigned to the X-Files. And Colton says, well, I'll see what I can do about that. Basically calls Mulder insane, which, frankly, if I were in Colton's position, I would probably do the same. Because Eugene Victor Toombs does not look like the kind of guy who could be killing people in 1933 when he's being brought in in 1993. So on the way out, Scully's saying, well, why don't you stand up for me? And Mulder's saying, well, it's because you had, you had the right guy. And in this little hallway conversation, we get a few very strong character moments. One of them is Mulder admitting that sometimes he likes to get under people's nerves because they're just so unwilling to open their eyes, they're bugging him. He just likes to push their buttons and feels the need to sometimes mess with their heads. And while he's having this conversation, there's a great moment, which again shows a lot of respect for the audience. While they're talking, Mulder just reaches out and gently adjusts the chain around Scully's neck and straightens it out a little bit. So it doesn't feel romantic in any way, it's very respectful, but it also draws the audience's attention to the fact that she is wearing this chain around her neck. And this is going to be important later in the episode. Mulder gives her permission, yeah, if you want to go ahead and do it, I won't hold it against you. And Scully goes, no, I know you at this point. You've got to have something more than the polygraph interpretation. I need to see what it is. So she is starting to get to know Mulder and realize he doesn't always share all the information he has. So they cut there to a fingerprint analysis lab, and Mulder pulls up Eugene Toombs' fingerprints from his recent arrest, and he does the computer manipulation to elongate and narrow it. So it's in the same proportions as the fingerprint that he pulled off the air duct that matched the murders from 1933 and 1963, and shows that it is a perfect match. I'm not exactly sure how you get a 100% match unless the body stretches exactly the same way every time. That part's a little bit shaky, but it still gets the point across. It's a very strong match. I just maybe would have gone with 98 or 99%. So neither of them are really sure how this can happen. Mulder says the only thing he's sure of is that they let him go. From here we cut to a nighttime scene. There's a car pulling into a driveway. And again, it's really delivering a maximum impact for the minimum dollars. This is Tomb's next victim. We just see eyes in the bushes. And again, the victim starts moving in slow motion. He's the only thing in color. This time we clearly see, yes, it definitely is Tomb's. So Scully was right. Any doubts the viewer may have had earlier are now gone. And Tomb's eyes now are yellow. So his victim appears to be the only one at home in a fairly nice house. A lot of times for these location shoots, they're using large houses, which seems to make it easier for the camera to get around inside, especially when they're using a steady cam, so they don't have to install tracks for the cameras to move on. So the man's going through, checking mail, seems to be coming home from a trip. He's got a lot of it. We see Toombs scaling the outside and crawling up to the chimney. Now, this is actually the only shot in the episode where you really have visual effects aside from coloration and the slow motion. We see Toombs stretching his arm into the chimney as he's crawling inside to get down through the fireplace and get access to his victim. 
There's other opportunities later where they would do it, and today they probably would in a lot of shows, but you know, X-Files was stretching the budget. Again, this was 1993, so this is right around the time of Jurassic Park. CGI effects weren't particularly cheap at that point. So it's just enough of that one arm, so we know, oh, he can stretch himself out. Once we see him enter the chimney, we don't see him for a while. Instead, we see his intended victim going through the house. He's got a drink in his hand, comes up to the fireplace. Now he's ready to start himself a cozy little fire to finish off the night. And this little fire they have is a great example of the kind of emotional bait-and-switch that the X-Files would do and the kind of twist they throw at you. So we know Toombs is coming down the chimney. This guy's lighting a fire underneath. We're thinking, oh, is you know, he going to drive Toombs out? Is he going to accidentally save himself? That's not the case. From there, we see Toombs coming out of the darkness. He's been down the chimney. He's already in the house. Comes up, attacks the guy from behind, cut a little bit into slow motion, and again, we don't see the attack itself. We see Toombs grab him by the shoulder, and then the camera shifts down to be pointing at the victim's feet. Fade out, fade back in, and now we get the crime scene investigation grasping at straws. Still not quite ready to listen to Mulder, but he is looking at the case. And Colton is basically trying to kick Mulder out of the crime scene. And Scully plays the politician here, and she points out, we are authorized investigators, you wouldn't look good on your record to throw Mulder out. So again, needling him, and Colton's going, well, whose side are you on? So he's really playing this as himself against Mulder, and his, it's, his ambition is coming first. And Scully's response is, the victim's side. Mulder checks out the fireplace, finds another elongated fingerprint, and finds evidence that Toombs has taken a souvenir other than the liver. He sees little marks on the mantelpiece that the viewer knows were just a little decoration. Now from there, we cut to Mulder looking at the microfiche records in the area. He's checking the county census, and he's found a census form for Eugene Victor Toombs from 1903. Skelly comes in, points out that Toombs' address was a cover. He hasn't been there. He hasn't shown up for work since he was arrested. And Mulder found Toombs' address in 1903 was apartment 103 at 66 Exeter Street. Scully checks the first murder. It was in apartment 203 at 66 Exeter Street. He killed the guy above him. So we really have a feeling that is the first set of murders. That's the first victim. That's where it all began. Now, Scully's willing to say it's not Toombs. She's thinking more like family members. So it's a family of serial killers passing it down from generation to generation. And it's the genetic ties that have caused coincidental similarities in the fingerprints. And Mulder's saying, no, it's the same guy. And this is also a clear sign of how much respect Mulder has for Scully. He's saying he's got four victims. The only chance left is with the next batch of attacks in, and he pauses, Scully says, 2023. Mulder's reaction, and you'll be head of the bureau by then. But this isn't delivered the way we see Duchovny delivered it when he's being sarcastic. It's delivered like, at this point, Mulder is convinced Scully will be head of the bureau in 2023. He sees a lot of potential in this new partner. So again, big steps toward that equal partnership here. And a lot of respect from Mulder for Scully. So they're just going to start digging through other records, looking for wedding records, right? looking for death records, looking for children. And again, we get the montage as they're going through all this. As they dig through record after record, Mulder says, he's got nothing. This guy was never born, he's never married, and he never died. But Scully has something. So even though Mulder was looking just at tombs, we see Scully's attention to detail, how thorough Scully is. She found the current address of the investigating officer from the Powhatan Mill murders in 1933. And again, this is a guest star. He's in it very quickly, just two short scenes, but it's really powerful. The guy they have just nailed it. So they're visiting him in a retirement home, and he's talking about how he was sheriff in 1933 and in 1963, and how he's haunted by the horrors of what he saw that day. He's also hitting on some points that you have to have, about how you know he can see this terrible stuff, but he can still go home and put it out of his mind and play ball with this kid. You've got to be able to do that. And that's, that's part of what rings so true to me. I've got an uncle in homicide, and it's the same thing. You can 
I can actually see the difference in him between when he was working in other departments and when he got moved into homicide in the local police force and eventually moved out of it because it's a very high-stress career. But it's really hard to come home and stay optimistic when you're seeing what these guys see. And the guy playing this part just absolutely nailed it. I really believe he's been haunted by what he's seen for decades. It goes beyond haunting. He has a box of evidence that he's collected, unofficially and officially, related to this case because he knew that the guy was still out there. He knew that the murders in 63 were by the same person as in 33. He's calling him prison nightly. He's already called him a monster. And he's saying by then he was at a desk job. They wouldn't let me anywhere near the case. But he's got parts of removed livers. He's got evidence that other trophies were taken from the crime scenes. Just small personal effects. Like the piece missing from the mantle. Mulder asks him, have you ever heard the name Eugene Victor Toombs? And the reaction is immediate. It's actually stealing him when he's bringing him in. He knows he was on the right track. And he's taking out surveillance photos. Including a picture of Eugene Victor Toombs in 1963 looking exactly the way he did in 1993. He also pulls out a picture of Tomb's original address, 66 Exeter Street, and that's where Mulder and Scully go next, and they find a pretty beat-up apartment building. It's surprised it hasn't been condemned and leveled, but we'll actually get to that point later this season. So Mulder and Scully go in, and opening the door is actually the only shot of the two of them that's taken from the episodes and used in the opening credits, and it's going to stay that way for years. They come into apartment 103, and it's almost empty. There's a little bit of furniture in one corner. There's a sink, no bathroom, which strikes me as a little odd now, but that could have been typical for construction in 1903. It wouldn't surprise me at all if there's a shared bathroom. When Mulder pulls down a mattress that's been propped up against the wall, they find a giant hole. They're saying, what's down there? They can't tell, so Scully doesn't take a second thought. She holsters her weapon and starts climbing down. And again, we get a little shot of the chain around her neck dangling. There's not a lot of light in here, but they set it up just so that would glint and glisten and catch the viewer's eye. Once again, respect for the audience. Just subtle clues and subtle reminders that it's there. From here, they come into the old coal cellar, and they've got their maglite flashlights, which are apparently not standard FBI issue. They usually have much stronger flashlights, but that'll come. While they're down here, they find a little table with all the knickknacks and everything that Toombs has been taking from his victims. So we see the hairbrush that was mentioned by the original investigating officer. Mulder finds the, the object that was on the mantle of the fourth victim in 1993. And they notice at the end of the coal cellar, it's actually a giant nest. It's not really clear what it is until they get close, but they realize it's a nest, and it's made out of rags and newspapers with something just binding it together. And Mulder's reaching and pulling on it, and Scully recognizes the smell and realizes this is bile. And again, we get some of that trademark Mulder humor with him saying, how quickly can I get this off me without betraying my cool exterior? So not quite as deadpan as the delivery is going to be later. Again, that line really sets off the style of humor that we're going to be seeing from him. And this is the point where Mulder shares his theory, that Toombs is a genetic mutation who can hibernate for 30 years, sustained by the livers that he takes, and that he's got some sort of genetic abnormality that lets him stretch, and he's a 20th century genetic mutant. Scully doesn't completely dismiss it, but just, in any event, he's not here now. We need a surveillance team. And it's going to take some finagling, so she agrees to head downtown and get it, while Mulder's going to keep watch from outside. So while they're making their way out through the dark coal cellar, Scully waits, who's been snagged on something, gets loose, and keeps on coming. And after that, camera tilts up, and we see a hand holding the chain from around Scully's neck. Moves up a little further, this is Eugene Victor Toombs. He's been there the entire time. He knows what they know. He's been listening, and he's just been crawling around on top of the ceiling pipes. So from here we cut to the next morning where Mulder's there. He's getting relieved by the next surveillance agents, saying he's unarmed but treat him as dangerous. He and Scully will be back in eight hours to relieve him. And again we see the lack of respect that he's getting from his colleagues as they jab him, calling him spooky again. 
From there, we cut back to the Baltimore offices. Colton's coming in furious about pulling two men off his detail to watch Toombs. He's written Toombs off. He's not a possibility. And he's actually, you know, called the upper authorities and had the stakeout of Toombs' place called off. So there's nobody watching Toombs right now. And he just can't wait to break the news to Mulder himself. And this is where we see Scully getting upset at him and saying, you know, it's not worth it. She can't... If this is the price of crawling up the ladder, she can't wait to see him fall down and land on his ass. Which is actually a big step in a show in setting up the potential audience. So not just getting a little bit freaky, but ass is not much of a profanity, but it's enough in the TV ratings world that you know you're excluding a particular demographic. And X-Files was basically saying, we're not going to shy about telling stories for adults. And from here, we see Scully go home, and confirmation, she is the next victim. That's why Toombs took that chain. It's the same slow motion and color distortion effect. So from there in the evening, we cut to Mulder. He's been sleeping all day, doesn't have his messages, realizes the stakeout's gone, what's going on, and he just runs into 66 Exeter Street. Again, not used to having backup. He doesn't call for backup. From here, we're cutting back and forth a little bit between Scully and her apartment leaving Mulder messages, and it's kind of filmed from an eyeline perspective like there's someone creeping through the apartment. So again, you get the feeling that Scully's being watched, even though Toombs does not actually represent the camera at this point, because Scully would clearly see him and react. From there, we see Toombs on the outside of the window, and he's reaching up to one of the little cracks. Again, he doesn't actually stretch. We just get that impression because of the way Hutchison moves. He can really give you that feeling. Mother goes back to Toombs' apartment, he's down in the hovel, and he spots Scully's chain on the table of souvenirs. So from here we cut back to the apartment, where Scully's about to take a bath, bile drips on her from an air duct in the ceiling. Now this is another great moment for the X-Files. This is showing that Scully is not your typical damsel in distress. She doesn't run out of the apartment, she doesn't call Mulder, she doesn't go for safety. She goes for her gun, and then she goes back. Now Mulder realizes what's going on, he's trying to call her from the car phone, but her phone lines have been cut. You can tell Scully is giving a little bit of emphasis and giving Mulder the benefit of the doubt. She's in the apartment alone, and she's pointing her guns at the small air ducts, holds it there, turns around, and then Toombs attacks her from inside a duct, which is actually much smaller than the first one we saw. Again, cutting back and forth between Mulder rushing in and Toombs attacking Scully. And she is fighting back. She's not going down. She's putting up a bigger fight than anyone else has. We see her literally punch him across the jaw. She goes for eye gouging with her thumbs. But Toombs does manage to overpower her. It's not until Mulder shows up with a gun that he tries to escape through the window. Mulder doesn't shoot him because he doesn't have a clear shot. Scully is chasing after him. Now this is one part of the episode that doesn't really work for me. They know they've got a guy who can crawl through the smallest air ducts. He can distort. He can stretch. And they restrain him with handcuffs. I don't understand... Toombs knows that they know he can do this. I don't understand why he doesn't just slip out of the cuffs and go back for the attack. But he does calm down. He does relent. His eyes actually change from yellow back to the normal color. We cut back to another great little moment with the original officer, the guy who just felt so haunted. We get a sense of closure for him. Now, we don't often get a sense of closure in the X-Files. We discussed that in our last podcast. But he sees the newspaper article with Eugene Toombs being caught in the serial killings. And we can see him just starting to cry in relief. He could finally say they caught the guy. Cut from there to the prison where Toombs is tearing up a copy of that same newspaper and licking it, and he's building his own nest. While we're doing this, we get some commentary and some observations from Scully. They've already done a preliminary medical check, and they've noticed some very strange anomalies in terms of his skeletal and his muscular structure. So there's some hint that these guys have seen the signs that he has the characteristics he needs to stretch. But Mulder's not really that interested in this point. What he sees is people like tombs are out there, or creatures like tombs are out there. And the average Joe on the street who can get these fancy security systems, who can get these alarms to make themselves safe, it's not enough. 
they're still not safe. And that's what's haunting Mulder. So we see that it's not just his personal drive to find Samantha and his personal drive to prove that alien theories are right. We see there really is a big part of him that's out there to protect the public. So, and then the episode finishes with the kind of closure that we can expect from the X-Files at best, with Emil being brought to Toombs in prison. And the episode ends with Toombs eyeing the food slot that's in the middle of his door. And knowing what we know about him now, we got a question. Yeah, the slot is narrower than anything we've seen him squeeze through before, but is it wide enough for Toombs to get out? So this, as the first Monster of the Week episode, this was an excellent choice. We get a very good creepy little mystery here. It is kind of a, a human-type monster, which the X-Files did really well. So they're not always, you know, your aliens and they're not always the typical mythological creatures. A lot of the Monster of the Week episodes we're going to see are just really twisted people. Not necessarily paranormal, just screwed up. And this really starts to set the tone for what the X-Files can be. It's the darkest episode to date. A lot of the episodes in the first season use a lot of daytime shooting, and that's going to be tapering off as the series progresses. Please join us in two weeks for our commentary and our discussion of Conduit, the fourth episode of the X-Files. And feel free to get in touch with us, either through the columns at Bureau 42. We also have an email address, xfiles.b42 at gmail.com. There is no dash in the X-Files, just xfiles.b42 at gmail.com. Thank you, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks. Intro and outro music is Outside Poolside by Lastwell, created under the Creative Commons license. The rest of this podcast, copyright Bureau 42, 2013.